I, uh, I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to be uh, diverted from the main task that God has given to us. It's, it's very easy to be deflected by, by simple things, things that we wouldn't consider uh, to be sin, just things that get in the way, that keep us from keeping the main thing the main thing, as Joe Aldrich says. Um, the, the, the main task that we have is to build the city of God. Uh, there's a very close analogy between the work that the, the Nehemiah and his wall builders were doing in the book of, of Nehemiah and the task that, that's set before us. We, too, are building the city of God. And the main thing, as Joe Aldrich puts it, is to keep the main thing the main thing. I was listening to a, a, a sportscaster interview Roger Staubach some years ago when he was still quarterbacking the uh, Dallas Cowboys. And uh, this, uh, uh, this interviewer asked him how he felt when he'd been intercepted and he was standing on the sidelines waiting for the next set of offensive downs. Was he anxious? How did, how did he feel? And Staubach said, I can hardly wait to get my hands on the ball. Now, it's this kind of irrepressible spirit, I think, that characterized Nehemiah. He, Staubach, Roger Staubach, and Nehemiah were cut out of the same, same piece of cloth. Because very often, Nehemiah was diverted from the assignment that, was, that, he, that he was given, that of wall building. But his attitude was always, I can hardly wait to get my hands back on the wall. Now, uh, Nehemiah is saying that to us as well. During these times when we're deflected away from the task, we need to get back to work on the wall. Nehemiah and his wall builders were doing something very strategic. They were building a defense system for the city of Jerusalem, the place where God intended to manifest his glory. It was to that city that Jesus came. That's where he was crucified, made salvation for us. That's where he was raised for our justification. Jerusalem, is, as far as God is concerned, is the center of the world geographically. That's where salvation took place. And that's why it was so important for Nehemiah to work on the city and build the city of God. Now, we're at the same task. God has called us to build the city of God. That's what the church is today. Not, not the buildings, not the programs of the church, but the people of the church here and in other churches around the city of Boise. Whenever we invest any time reading the scriptures, pondering them, permitting the word to lead us to worship of Christ, we're building the city of God. Whenever we spend time in prayer, we're building God's city. Whenever we give to, to uh, causes that are worthwhile and, and, and produce uh, and, and cause the spread of the gospel around the world, we're building on the, on the city. Whenever you call someone up during the week to encourage them and strengthen their grip on God, you're contributing to the, to the city of God. You see, all of these activities are what Jesus described as laying up treasure in heaven, investing yourself in things that are going to last, that are going to endure. But the problem is we're easily deflected away from that, uh, deflected away from that task. We have to spend a lot of time working on the city of man we have to make a living. We have to maintain our houses. We have to maintain our vehicles. We have to take care of our bodies. That's, that, those are all essentials. And the tendency is to get preoccupied with building in the city of man, and we don't keep the main thing the main thing. See? We're not centering 
our hearts on, on building the city of God. Now, what you have in this chapter, in chapter 6, are a series of, of attacks upon Nehemiah that were intended to divert him from the main task. Three of them, essentially. We want to look at them because they're very close analogies to the kind of attacks that we get today. Same enemy that was invading against uh, Nehemiah and his wall builders is our enemy as well, Satan. The problem, as I've said over and over again, was not Tobias and Ballot and Geshem and, and the human uh, opponents, the governors of the, of the other Persian provinces that were opposed to the building project. The real enemy was Satan behind the scenes, as it is for us today. He's the enemy with a capital E, you see. And, and he was the one at work behind Sinballat and the others to frustrate and thwart the mission that was given to Nehemiah and deflect him just enough that the, that the progress on the wall would, would be, uh, would be uh, retarded. Now, uh, we're told in chapter 6, verse 1, that when word came to Sinballat, who was the Sumerian uh, governor, Tobiah, who was Ammonite over across uh, the Jordan River to the east of, of Judah, Geshem, who was the uh, governor of the Arabian province to the south, and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. They'd almost finished the wall. They hadn't set the, the gates in the... They wouldn't get doors and the gates yet. They were about ready to dedicate the wall and, and cut the ribbon. When an offer came from Sanballat and the other governors to come to a summit meeting down at the Valley of Ono. Now, Ono is just a very short distance away, only about 20 miles, about half a day on horseback, uh, off to the northwest, about equidistant between Samaria and, and Jerusalem. Good place to meet. Good suggestion. Summit meeting of the big four, these four governors, Iron out their difficulties and try to work everything out so that Nehemiah could get back to work on the wall. Nehemiah could engage in a little shuttle diplomacy and, and take the heat off of the, the Judeans and they could get back to the project that God had given to them. Sounded like a good thing to do. But Nehemiah saw right through it. He realized that they were scheming, as he puts it, to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a a great project. This is a huge task, magnificent opportunity that I have. And I cannot go down. I can't come down to this meeting. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Now, it wasn't that Nehemiah was an isolationist or that he wasn't willing to be reconciled. It wasn't the problem. It's that he saw this would be a diversion. He also saw that they had an ulterior motive, that they were out to frustrate him. The word that's translated harm here does not necessarily mean physical harm. It, would, it could simply be that they wanted somehow to retard progress on the wall, to slow him down. And Nehemiah said, I don't have time to come. It's a good thing to do. might be worthwhile in another situation. But I'm too busily engaged. This work is taking too much out of me. I'm not going to come. And uh, when they said, come to the, to the Valley of Ono, Nehemiah said, oh, no, I won't come. I won't come. Now, uh, I, I find for myself that one of Satan's finest ploys is to distract me with things that are perfectly good. Get me obsessed with worthwhile things that take me away from the main thing. Uh, recreational things, avocational pursuits. And all of you can understand what I'm talking about. Working on your house, 
working on your vehicle, snowmobiling, skiing, fishing, hunting, doing handwork, decorating your home, taking care of your body, learning, uh, you know, uh, working on your, your tennis serve or your racquetball kill shot and all these things you know, that we tend to get, get preoccupied with, which in themselves are good. There's nothing wrong with them. But we can become obsessed with them to the point that they take us away from the main thing. Good question to ask yourself one time, sometime. Where does my mind go when I'm not thinking about anything else? Jesus said, where your heart is, that's your treasure. By heart, he meant mind. In, in, the, in the Greek mind, the heart is the mind. That's, that's the rational part of us as human beings. Where your mind is, that's what you treasure. So every once in a while, it's good to ask yourself, when I'm not thinking about anything else, when I'm not preoccupied with something or talking to someone, where does my mind go? That's your treasure, you see. That's what's most important to you. That's the heart of your life. Now, the heart of our life ought to be to build the city of God, to invest our life in things that are eternally valuable. We may not have as much time to do that as we do to build in the city of man. But nevertheless, the question is, what is the heart of our life? What is it that we're devoted to? What are we obsessed with? And very often, very good things can, uh, can derail us. I think, for example, that, that television is one of those things that, that uh, can divert, uh, divert us because it takes up so much time. I, I, we have a television set. I watch television. It's, it's a good diversion. But uh, if you stay up late, night after night, and you can't get up in the morning to read the scriptures then it's become a diversion. A lot of my friends tell me, I can't get up early in the morning. I have granulated eyeballs when I get up. I can't. You know, my wife says to me, shut your eyes. I can't stand the sight of blood. I say, well, go to bed at night. Oh, well, there's so much to do every night. Well, no, you see, some things have to go if the right things are going to stay. If we're going to get up in the morning and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we may have to go to bed earlier at night. It's just that simple. Nothing wrong with television at night, but it can become a distraction that keeps us from the main thing. I was telling the men last Wednesday that uh, uh, you know, men get up in the morning and they start getting dressed. They pull on their trousers and they put on their shirt, and that's always the first thing. No, no. Paul says the first thing is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always the first step in getting dressed for the world. Get up in the morning. Get alone by yourself. Get out the scriptures. Begin to read them. Think about the truth in the word. Begin to worship the Lord in that, in that moment by yourself and him alone. And that's what prepares you for the day. And it's just as important to go into the world dressed in Jesus Christ as it is going into the world dressed for success or however you dress, you see. So the point I want to make is that sometimes good things can become evil things because they distract us from the main thing. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going to do that. He said no to things that distracted him, even though they were worthwhile things. Now, uh, four times these uh, guilt-edged, uh, embossed official invitations came from the governors to attend the summit conference, and four times Nehemiah said no. On the fifth occasion, Senballot took a different tack. Verse 5. Then the fifth time, Senballot sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. 
Normally in those days, they rolled on papyrus or they rolled on parchment, and they rolled the thing up and they tied it with a string, and they put a wax seal on it, usually with the official seal on, in the wax, impressed in the wax, so that you didn't open someone else's mail. But this was an open letter, like a postcard. Anyone could read it. And in the letter, it was written, It is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, that is Artaxerxes. So come, let us confer together. And Nehemiah knew he was in big trouble. There were three charges that Sinballat makes, none of which were, were legitimate. Nevertheless, they were, they, were, they were very serious charges. He charges him with treason, rebelling the city to rebel. Charges him with, with uh, aspirations to the, to the throne. He had you know, pretensions. Uh, he, wa- he wanted to be king. And uh, third, he was bribing the prophets to appoint him king. The prophets were the kingmakers in those days. God appointed the kings. He actually was the kingmaker. But the, but the prophets anointed the king as a sign to the people of God's appointment. So uh, they're saying, you're, you're, uh, you're bribing the, the prophets to, to uh, place you in a position of, of authority. Now, these were serious charges because the Persian officials would not take them lightly. There is a huge monument in the city of Behistun in, in modern-day Iran. The whole side of the mountain has been taken off, and there's a carving there showing Darius II with his foot on someone's head that, had, uh, uh, that was charged with the same sort of thing that Nehemiah was charged, uh, charged here with. So Nehemiah knew that this was serious. He was in big trouble if this ever got back to the king. Now, none of these charges were true, but they were very serious. And they frightened Nehemiah. And they could very well have diverted him from the task. He could have shrunk from it out of fear of what what might happen. This is typical rumor. Very indefinite. It is reported to me. That's very often the way rumors are, are passed on. No sources. You don't know who said what. You can't put your finger on anything. It's just been reported. Lots and lots of people are saying so and so. And uh, uh, this kind of, of rumor always has damaging effects. There, there's no way that you can retrieve these words. When you, when you pass on this sort of slander about someone else, it goes everywhere. I read this last week a story about a young East Indian boy who passed on a rumor to a number of people in his village. And it wasn't true. So the elders called him together and told him, you must go back to every home and set the record straight. And every home that he visited, he had to leave a feather on the front step of the, of the cottage or the house. And uh, he did so, and he came back to the elders to report, and they said, now you must go back and get all the feathers. And, of course, when he went back to get the feathers, they'd been blown all over town. The wind had distributed them everywhere. And he got the point. There, when you do this sort of thing, you can't, you can't retrieve uh, the results. It, it, it can be ruinous. And, and it always intimidates us. But that's, one of, that's another of Satan's finest ploys. Once he sees that you're on task and you have your priorities straight, you can count on it that someone will misunderstand you and you will be slandered and misrepresented. I learned this very early in the game. I, the first ministry that I had was a Young Life Club in the, the city of Duncanville, Texas. Uh, I spent a good... Uh, 
portion of my youth living in right outside that little town. Went to high school there, and uh, I was always uh, uh, a little concerned about the high school kids that grew up in that town. Typical Texas uh, farming, ranching community where the kids get married very early. They get right out of high school and get married, and most of them have no religious upbringing, and they, they don't go to church, and most of them are without Christ. And when I was in college, my, my third year in college, a friend of mine and I, his name was Richard Ayers, decided to start a Young Life Club out there at Duncanville. So we, uh, we went out and hung around the football field, the basketball gym, and we met uh, students there, and we talked to the coaches and the teachers, and, and pretty soon we had a few kids coming, 25 or 30 high school kids that were meeting in this farmhouse near, uh, near Duncanville. And uh, one day I showed up for the meeting, and there were only four kids there. I couldn't understand what had happened. And then asked around, discovered that one of the pastors in town had started the rumor that we were a bunch of communists. And we were trying to subvert the, uh, the politics as well as the morality of, of the kids in, in Duncanville, Texas. And in a little Texas town like that, a very conservative little town, that's the kiss of death. I mean, you're finished. And we virtually were. It took us a long time to live that reputation down. It went all over the place. It didn't come from the local barkeep. It came from the local pastor who was a little put out, put out because the kids weren't coming to his church. See, Now, there was nothing we could do. It was very damaging. And the temptation, I know, many times I thought, you know, what? Here we're coming out. We, we drove out 30 miles every about two or three times a week, drive back home. We had spent all this money on gas and all this interest in the kids, and this is what we get for it. And the, and the temptation is to give up and, and to not want to pursue this ministry anymore. You see. But we needed to do what Nehemiah did. Notice what he does. Verse 8, I sent this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. In other words, he denied the charge. A simple denial is sufficient. We don't have to run all over town trying to straighten everything out. You can't. The more you protest, uh, the more guilty you appear to be. When you're slandered, it's far better to give a simple denial. Your charge is simply not true. I didn't do it, or it isn't true of me. And then, secondly, to put the whole thing in God's hands. He says in verse 9, they, they, were, they were all trying to frighten us. Uh, that's very bad translation. Uh, I say boo to whoever translated that phrase. It's not that they were trying to frighten them. They were frightened. Nehemiah was scared out of his wits. The text simply says they were frightening us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. That's all we can do. A simple denial first, and then secondly, put ourselves in God's hands and ask Him to strengthen us so we will not be intimidated by the charges. Now, uh, there was a third attack, and this one came from within. As we've seen repeatedly through the book of Nehemiah, sometimes the attacks come from outside, sometimes they come from within. In this case, it was one of uh, Nehemiah's fellow Jews one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of uh, Mehetabel. We don't know anything about this uh, person. He was a prophet and a priest who lived in the uh, temple precinct, as most of the priests did. He was shut in at his house, whether he was ill or whether he was ritually unclean or whether he, this was a ploy again 
he was he was uh, acting as though his life was endangered, and he was he had barricaded himself in his house. We we don't know, but it was necessary for Nehemiah to come see him. He didn't come out to see Nehemiah. He drew Nehemiah into the temple complex, and he he said, "Let us let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you tonight." He says. They're coming to kill you. They've let a contract on your life. And uh, your life is in danger. If you go back home tonight, they'll kill you. Let's run inside the temple and shut the doors. I'll protect you. Uh, good advice, except it was sin. <laughs> it, it, laymen were not supposed to go into the temple precinct. They could go into the, into, the, into the outer court, but they couldn't go into the temple proper. This would have been sin. They could run into the court and cling to the horns of the altar and be saved from violence that anyone wanted to do to them. But, but they weren't supposed to go into the temple. So Nehemiah perceived right away, this man was not of God. He was not a prophet of God. He was a false prophet because he was counseling Nehemiah to do something that was sinful. And I said, verse 11, should a man like me run away? <laughs> In other words, I'm not a coward. I'm not going to run. Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He bribed him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Now, there are many, many times in our life that we, that we believe that the means that, that the end justifies the means, but the mean uh, the means are sinful, and in such cases we have to say no, even if the end is legitimate. The end was the preservation of his own life, so he could could continue to give leadership, and it sounded very good. But the means to that end was illegal; it was sinful in God's sight. And Nehemiah said, "I won't do it. I just won't do it." Now, I find that these subtle attacks on the part of Satan, these attempts to seduce us into sin, are very, very effective. They always seem to be the right way to go, but in the end they're designed to deflect us from the, from the course just a little bit. Just get us away from the main thing. I think, for example, the, the sin, the, the subtle sin that so many men and some women are guilty of that is so destructive is that of sexual fantasy. That's the kind of secret Christian sin because it goes on up here and no one can see it. Can't, can't put your finger on that one, but yet it goes on. And, and men think, well, it doesn't really matter because I, I'm not engaged in, in the act, so the, you know, the thought doesn't make that much difference. But Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone will see God. The problem with sexual fantasizing is not merely that will lead you into deeper sin, lead you into the actions. And it, it, it may well do that. As Jesus said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The things that go on in our mind tend to turn up sooner or later in our, in our bodies and in our, in our activities. But the real problem, the far more serious problem, I believe, is that it, it obscures our vision of God. Jesus said, if you're not pure in mind, you can't see God. You can't grow can't worship him, can't love him. And, and, and you see, it's these subtle attacks that get to us. That's what they were trying to do to Nehemiah. That's what the enemy tries to do to us. I, sexual immorality 
though it is probably not the most prevalent sin, is, is the one that seems to derail most people the most. I have no idea how many friends of mine uh, have, been, have been deflected away from the course. They, they, they were making great progress spiritually, and then, and then something happened in their personal life, their moral life, and they began to collapse, and, and now they're far away from, from God. Of my four closest friends in seminary, one is now dead of cancer, and the other three are separated from their wives. After they got into the ministry, they, they became involved with someone in, in their churches. And, and now they're out of the ministry. Satan uses that, that, uh, that ploy on both men and women to, to deflect them away from, from godliness and from the pursuit of, of God. Carolyn and I were listening to a tape this past week by a woman who's an executive with IBM back in Chicago. And she was addressing a group of business uh, women, married and single business women. And uh, she was talking about her own life. She'd been divorced for about a dozen years. And uh, her walk now with the Lord was very mature. She's a very stable uh, person, well instructed. And, and she was talking to these business women about how to how to handle the special temptations that come to women out in the, in the, in the marketplace, out in the work world. And uh, she was talking about herself and the particular temptations that come her way. She said she's working with men that are very successful, they have very powerful personalities, they're very attractive men. And she finds her heart responding because she's single and she's lonely, and uh, it would be very easy for her to be drawn into a relationship with these men. But she says, I have one question that I ask myself, and it's the question that I want you to ask yourself whenever you're in in that situation. The temptations are strong. The allurement is there, and and it looks so good because you're so lonely and distraught. She said, the one question you ought to ask is, is he married? (laughs) And if he is, that's the end of it. That puts an end to it. See, that's living on the basis of an absolute, living on the basis of a principle in Scripture which forces us to say no to things, even though they may look so good when we look at them. No immoral means is justified, even if the end is good. I said, I'm sorry, I will not run into the temple. To do so would be sin. And even if I have to lose my life, even if I have to be alone for the rest of my life, I will not sin. Now, uh, the attacks uh, went on. Uh, Satan is relentless in his subtleties. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sinbalad, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So Shemaiah was not the only prophet that uh, was giving Nehemiah bad counsel. There were a number of others within uh, within the nation as well as to buy and send ballot outside. But nevertheless, in verse 15, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. That was a remarkable, remarkable accomplishment. The walls had been pulled down. They were in a complete state of disrepair. And uh, Nehemiah (coughs) and his band of uh, wall builders had, had put the thing back in order. They put the walls back up in less than, than two months. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, our our enemies lost their self-confidence. And they realized that this work had had been done literally from our God, not, not with the help of our God. It's not that these men were working hard and God helped out. 
It was done out of the resources that God made available. That's why they were able to do it. And as we've seen in, in the book of Nehemiah, the great lesson to the enemies of the gospel is to see God's people working together at a project when they normally would be at each other's throats, working together to do what God has called them to do and doing so in harmony and love and, 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 and with, a, uh, with concern and care for each other. That's what happened. And, and it showed the world that God was at work in this, in this group of people. Now, you would think at this point that the next verse would read, and they all lived happily ever after. You you, would think this would be the end of the book. We could come to the end of chapter 6. The job's done. The wall's built. That's what Nehemiah was called to do. And it was done. And they all lived together in harmony and peace. And and, uh, no, I didn't say that at all. The attacks went on. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him. Uh, Tobiah was the governor of Ammon, uh, off to the east. He had intermarried with influential Jews uh, in Jerusalem, and he had made, set up trade agreements with them. These were wealthy merchants that, uh, that had taken an oath or had drawn up a contract with Tobiah. And uh, uh, verse 18 says, Many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was a son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Johan, uh, Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. They kept saying, You don't understand this fellow Tobiah. He's really a good old boy. You don't, you're misunderstanding him. But all the time, Tobiah was undermining their efforts to build the wall and doing so by intimidating the people. That's the thread that runs all the way through this chapter, intimidation. That's the basis on which all of these diversions are, are built. The, the reason we get so involved with recreational things, you know, and racing our snowmobiles upside down through the snow cornice at uh, West Mountain and... Uh, skiing near vertical slopes and all that sort of stuff. You know, the reason you want to do that is because you're afraid you're going to miss out on life. And the reason we react to slander and get, get detracted and pulled away from the work of, of the wall is because we're afraid. We think we have to answer all of our critics and set everything right ourselves, and we, we spend so much time trying to address our critics that we don't work on the wall. And the reason we fall into sin very often is not out of rebellion, but because we're afraid. We know we shouldn't invite this person to live with us or we shouldn't go to live with them, but we're afraid of being alone. And, and underneath, see, is this effort on the part of the enemy to erode away our confidence in God and, and shake us and make us fearful. There's nothing you can do about fear. And fear in and of itself is not wrong. Fear is simply a reaction to anything that threatens us. But fear becomes wrong when we permit it, or or our response to fear becomes wrong when we permit it to tyrannize us and keep us from doing what God has called us to do. Paul was afraid. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he talks about the fightings without, that is, the people that were assaulting from, from without, and fear within, he said. That was his reaction to their assaults. He was afraid. Jesus was afraid when he was in the garden. He didn't want to face the cross. Jesus, when he says to the disciples, don't fear, doesn't, is not saying don't fear at all. The verb tense is always present. Don't keep on fearing to the point where your fear masters you and, 
and prevents you from doing what, what God asks you to do. No, you can't do anything about fear. And Satan will play upon our fears. But the question is, what, what are we going to do? How do we react to our fear? See? Do we respond to the fear? Do we fear the fear and run away? Or do we get a fresh grip on God and do what he's called us to do no matter what it costs us? You see? Now, God doesn't promise that things will go easy. They will go well. That things will always work out. That we won't have assaults. We will. But what he promises is grace for every attack. Grace for every day. Sufficient resources to face whatever we have to have to face. I uh, read a poem this past week from Annie Flint Johnson. It goes like this. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for today, rest for your labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. That's what we have. We can't, uh, we can't prevent the attacks. And like the, like the songwriter, uh, we're prone to wander. We know that we are. We're inclined to be caught up in these diversions and, and taken away from our first love. Nevertheless, for every attack, there is a corresponding strength and resource in Christ. So when the attacks come, when you find yourselves obsessed by something to the point that it's hindering your your pursuit of God, when you find yourself being slandered or attacked or misunderstood or, or misrepresented or tempted to sin or someone is trying to undermine your activities through fear, whatever the assault may be, just remind yourself that the main thing is the main thing. We need to keep pursuing God. We need to keep storing up treasure in heaven. And God will strengthen us to do whatever it is that we have to do. Now let's stand, and uh, we'll conclude in prayer. Thank you again, Lord, for this reminder that your grace is sufficient for us. We know our own, uh, we know our own heart and the inclination of our heart to to, to drop out of the race, uh, to to be distracted and not to pursue you. But but down underneath, Lord, there's a longing to know you. And we do want to follow you with all of our heart. Help us to be aware of these attacks. May we not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Help us to see them for what they are. Not escapes, not, not a way out, but, but a, a route that will entangle us and take away our joy. And strengthen our hand, Lord, upon you. Help us every day to take a fresh grip upon you and be strengthened by your grace. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.